Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Bill Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Welcome to episode 159 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I get into part two of our series, our five-part series on Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. Today, we're going to see Polycarp begin to call out different sections of the body of Christ there at Philippi, but do so in a way where he calls each group to basically live according to the basic teachings of Jesus and the apostles. I think you're going to be really blessed by this episode. And if you are, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on our Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also go check out my wife, Stephanie Baker's podcast, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker, to hear lots of amazing testimonies of God's faithfulness in people's lives. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can get access to all of our content by going to omegafrequency.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 159. All right, so part two of Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, we are now going to be looking at chapters three through five. Just to kind of bring everybody back up to speed, last time we held off on how Polycarp had been showing the two sides of the gospel, the way into the gospel, which is by grace through faith, and the way of the gospel, which is also by grace through faith, but it's living out the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. So much of what Polycarp has been saying in terms of the ethic traces back to Jesus's teachings and uh, also the teachings of Paul as well. You're going to see this continue in uh, chapters three through five. So, Stephanie, why don't you uh, read chapter three for me? Okay. Not that I should be taking on myself to write to you in this way about the life of holiness, my brothers, if you yourselves had not invited me to do so. For I am as far as anyone else of my sort from having the wisdom of our blessed and glorious Paul. During his residence with you, he gave the men of those days clear and sound instruction in the word of truth. While he was there in person among them, and even after his departure, he still sent letters which, if you study them attentively, will enable you to make progress in the faith, which was delivered to you. Faith is the mother of us all, with hope following in her train, and love of God and Christ and neighbor leading the way. Let a man's mind be wholly bent on these, and he has fulfilled all the commandments Oh, sorry, all the demands of holiness for to possess love is to be beyond the reach of sin. All right. So some really cool stuff here that Polycarp is getting at. And Steph, stop me at any point when you want to jump in. Sure. All right. So um, Polycarp talks about the way of righteousness, the way of holiness. Now, 
if we remember, he has just been quoting the Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapter 2. Uh, he talked about blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He talks about judge not, lest you be judged. Forgive, it'll be forgiven to you. Be merciful that you may obtain mercy. All of that. So you see stuff from Matthew 5 through 7. You see a little bit of the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. This is the way of righteousness. So that's something to really keep in mind. And then he says, look, you got all of this stuff. You Philippians got this, this way of righteousness from Paul, who spoke to you the word of truth. So Polycarp uh, basically is saying here that both Paul and Jesus preached the same message. It wasn't Jesus speaking to Jewish followers and then Paul speaking to uh, Gentile followers and Paul's preaching a different, more grace-filled message than Jesus. No, no, it's the same message. And that's really important because some people make a, especially those in the hyper-grace movement and some in the dispensational movement, make a distinction between Jesus's ethic and Paul's. And that's not true, uh, according to Polycarp. Polycarp saying that they preached the same message. Now, he also says that Paul did this in person among the Philippians. So Paul really did go to Philippi according to Acts 16. Uh, and Polycarp's, um, he's backing that up. Then Polycarp says that after that departure, he sent letters to Philippi. Uh, now one description, or sorry, one tra uh, translation of Polycarp's letter in the Bible study tools version uh, says wrote a letter. You read a version stuff that said letters. Mm -hmm. This is probably talking regardless. It's, it's talking about the letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really cool because here you have circulating in the early part of the second century, the well-attested belief that the letter to the Philippians is a uh, valid, um, true letter from Paul. This really existed. And within the letter to the Philippians, you have a, a extremely important statement about Jesus's divinity in chapter two, which we've covered quite a bit, the Christ hymn. You know, Jesus being in very nature God, right? Yeah, so that's really important. This is not something that uh, this belief that you see in uh, Philippians chapter 2 did not uh, get determined at or after the council of Nicaea, uh, Jesus being God. That was something that was long held. I mean, right from the very beginning of Christianity. Um, so just something to keep you, uh, sorry, just something to, uh, to remind us of. Also, he says that this letter, Polycarp says that this letter to the Philippians, which Paul wrote, is able to build us up in the faith, uh, in our Christian faith. So basically, and he's saying this is the word of truth. So Polycarp is saying within that letter to the Philippians, you basically have the whole gospel, at least all that you need to really build you up. That's not to say that we don't also need uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, or any of Paul's letters, or Peter, or John. 
James, etc. Uh, but he's saying that Paul is preaching the entire gospel there in Philippians. Uh, you may not see ex- explicit quotations back to the Sermon on the Mount, but Polycarp is saying that uh, Paul uh, is referencing all of that there in his teachings. And as we did our Philippians Bible study, we explained many of those callbacks to Jesus's uh, Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, that's good. Um, I was just on kind of unrelated, but um, kind of at the beginning, Polycarp's like humility really stood out to me. Mm. Like he's, I don't know. I mean, he's in a similar way to what Paul would say, you know, he's, but he's saying, I'm, you know, I'm as far as anyone else of my sort from having the wisdom of Paul. And Paul would say, you know, don't look at me, you know, look at Jesus, like follow me as I follow him. And I think that that's something that is, um, yeah, it really hits me because that's not always an attribute that's celebrated in our culture and leaders. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Polycarp is mirroring the humility that we're called that Paul calls us to have in Philippians chapter two, mm-hmm. have that same attitude of humility toward one another, which existed in Christ. Right. Yeah. So really cool. Um, Polycarp has has very much let the teachings of Jesus form him and transform him. Yeah, uh, just continuing the last little section of chapter three, um, you hear the faith, hope, and love trio or triad, which Paul brings about in 1 Corinthians 13. So there is Polycarp quoting another letter of Paul, um, 1 Corinthians. And um, Paul says, or sorry, Polycarp says that all of those ethics um, detailed by Paul in Philippians show us how to love God and love our neighbor more fully to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, Polycarp says that this is the command of righteousness and the people that live that out have fulfilled the command of righteousness. Now, that is not a righteousness that saves us. Um, It's the righteousness of Jesus that saves us, but this is how to walk in the way of righteousness. So again, you're seeing the two sides of the same coin, right? Of the gospel message, the way into the kingdom of God and the way of the kingdom of God. Got anything else you want to add for chapter three? Um, yeah, that last line for to possess for to possess love, and it if you know for the listener they can't tell, but this at least in this translation is capitalized love. Um, but it reminded me, it, to possess love is to be beyond the reach of sin. First um, Peter four eight, above all, keeping one another earnestly, um, or loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, and obviously. This, uh, you know, Polycarp is referring to Jesus being the embodiment of love. That's why it is capitalized or that's why it's personified there. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see a lot of uh, um, 
influence from John's first letter as well uh, about, you know, if we're truly loving as we're called to do, we're not sinning Mm -hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep on going. So chapter four, uh, this is not a break in the conversation we're going to see, but this is a, um, an addition to this dialogue about what it means to love, where our love is, where our hope is, where our faith is, that kind of thing. So, Steph, you want to read chapter four? Sure. Thank you. All right. But troubles of every kind stem from the love of money. Therefore, since we know that we brought nothing into this world and we can carry nothing out, we must gird on the armor of integrity. And the first step must be to school our own selves into conformity with the divine commandments. After that, we can go on to instruct our women in the traditions of the faith and in love and purity, teaching them to show fondness and fidelity to their husbands and a chaste and impartial affection for everyone else and to bring up their children in the fear of God. Widows are to observe discretion as they practice our Lord's faith they should, be, they should make constant intercessions for everyone and be careful to avoid any tail-bearing, spiteful tittle-tattle, false allegations, over-eagerness for money, or misconduct of any deception or any description. They are to recognize that they are an altar of God who scrutinizes every offering laid on it and from whom none of their thoughts or intentions, no single one of their heart's desires can be hidden. All right. So there are basically three sections to chapter four. First is a general call. Uh, Then there is a section to wives and then a section to widows. So let's hit each one separately, if that's okay. Of course. Cool. (laughs) All right. So the first, it's uh, really interesting um, how Polycarp transitions from the the command of righteousness, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself with the love of money. Mm. He juxtaposes those against each other, basically insinuating that the love of money is one of the strongest um temptations to pull us away from the command of righteousness of the two great commandments, basically. Mm -hmm. So the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, knowing therefore we brought nothing into this world, we can carry nothing out. Um, So first thing, Polycarp's quoting another letter of Paul, Mm. 1 Timothy. And he's quoting 1 Timothy 6. So here's another Here's another uh, strong pull, uh, a strong attestation to the validity of Paul's letters. First uh, Timothy was perhaps the second to last letter that Paul wrote. Just another quick thing. It's, it's really cool how though Polycarp was a, um, was a disciple of the apostle John, he is not quoting John left and right. He's quoting Paul left and right. Mm. And he had some incredible things to say about Paul. Um, so you can see there's not like uh, 
a faction, you know, um, in Polycarp's mind, you know, a John group and a Paul group. They're all part of the same group of followers of the Lord. Um, so, you know, historically, to put this letter in some context, a lot of people think that this was written uh, toward the beginning of Hadrian's reign, Emperor Hadrian. And in that time, uh, in the beginning part of Hadrian's reign, uh, it's believed that he joined a cult called the Eleusinian Mysteries, which is one of the early, early secret societies. And when Hadrian did that, a large persecution broke out against Christians. And so uh, Aristides, around 125, writes an apology to Hadrian explaining um, how Christianity is the ultimate religion. It's, it's the true religion. And he compares Christianity to uh, Judaism, to uh, Greeks and barbarians. And in that, you see a strong defense of the way of Christianity, which is the way of Jesus. And a large, large part of that is loving our enemies and not leaning on um, money to be our security, but a belief in the resurrection and the afterlife is what we should truly look at. And so it's interesting if Polycarp's letter was written during that early uh, Hadrianic persecution of Christians before Aristides' apology, you could see how people during persecution would be tempted to turn to money for security, and especially, um, and to not really value the teachings of Jesus. It doesn't, I don't feel blessed when I'm being persecuted. I don't feel blessed when I'm poor. Uh, that doesn't make me feel safe. Um, so Polycarp really hits at um, the main way that people often find security in the world, which is through financial security. Mm. You know, yeah. so what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, money, obviously, uh, you know, money is a big vice for a lot of people. Um, I, I was thinking about, um, the part where he says, you know, we brought nothing into this world, we can carry nothing out. And it was making me think of Job and he's, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And like looking at the example of Job, Job was very wealthy, but, you know, he obviously in that moment, especially he realized that, you know, there was nothing that money was going to offer. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people that kind of what you were saying, that financial security and um, it can cause us to compromise on what God calls us to do. Um, and I mean, I've I've definitely been there. Like I've been afraid to stand up or afraid to do something that I knew was maybe the right thing to do because it was like, well, I might lose my job if I do this or, you know, it's, what are we putting our trust in? Am I putting my trust in my job or am I putting my trust in God? And so 
you know, that that love of money, which, you know, you can you can you can be poor and have a love of money and you can be rich and have a love of money. It doesn't have anything to do with how much of it you have. It's where you're finding your security or where you, what you're putting your trust in or what you think will save you. And, um, you know, there's lots of really, really wealthy people that will show over and over how no matter how much of it you have, it doesn't buy happiness or it doesn't um, provide the way you think it might. Yeah, yeah. So Polycarp tells us not to arm ourselves with financial security, but to arm ourselves with righteousness, to walk in the commandments of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So with that said, Polycarp then addresses wives. Now, um, he tells them to walk in the faith given to them in love, walk in faith and love, um, loving God, um, being chaste, and training up their children in the fear of the Lord, basically. So it's interesting when we read uh, these kind of sections that are directed towards certain groups. Uh, sometimes there are particulars um, that... Uh, seem to only uh, reflect the situation of a relational or the relational dynamic between two people, like a wife to a husband, that kind of a thing. But oftentimes in Paul's letters, and I believe here in uh, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, what you have is um, people groups being asked to do the things that Christians are supposed to do. Mm. Just regular Christians are supposed to do these things. And you can see that a lot in the letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, things that women are supposed to do in chapter 2 are things that pa uh, Paul calls everyone to do at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, so why do you think he sing like singles them out and says that specifically? That's a good question. And what you're going to find, just like in each of, in, like in many of Paul's letters, is that he addresses everybody individually. And what you see, generally speaking, is a call for each type of group of people to do the basic things that Jesus calls us to do. Okay. I mean, it's just, it, it's literally that plain. You can see it in First Timothy very clearly. Women are asked to do the same things that men are asked to do. He just says it in a little bit different way. Uh, young ladies, like as Polycarp says, virgins are asked to do the same thing that the young men are called to. Then you get to like in chapter three in first Timothy, you get to a statement on the elders or the presbyters. And it's interesting, like, oh, presbyters are called to a higher standard, you know, than other people. We often think that. And in like James chapter three, one, yes, it's like teachers are going to be held to a higher standard. But what Paul says in chapter three concerning uh, overseers is that they are called to be Christians, to do basic things that Christians are supposed to, to be. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's not that Paul is singling one group out over another, like you women are out of control kind of a thing mm -hmm. uh, and men aren't. No, he's just hitting each group. And what he's calling each group to do is live the commandments of the Lord. Okay. He just hits them individually. And perhaps one of the way, reasons 
or one of the ways that he's doing this, think about a teaching technique that you use um, when you're teaching. Kids, adults, whatever. When you're teaching, we have a tendency to kind of drift or to lock in on one thing, one phrase that was said and kind of analyze that for a while and not totally being present listening to every word equally. And so one of the devices I know you use, you'll call a person by name. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily that you're singling them out. You're just, it's a way to get people's attention and people to lock in. And even people who aren't having their name called, when they hear a name called, they'll be like, huh? Mm -hmm. They'll look up, they'll start paying attention again. And so uh, I think that's one of the things that Polycarp is doing, similar to Paul, uh, similar to Peter, um, because a lot of these letters are being read out loud. People aren't reading them silently to themselves. Generally speaking, they're in the first three centuries of the church. Uh, when these letters are read in church, it's read by a reader. A reader is standing up there. and People don't have their own copies, generally speaking. Mm. Okay. All right. So, you know, for the the wives' first he tells them that they need to uh, love their husbands, right? He calls the wives to walk in the faith given to them. Well, what would that include? That first statement to the wives, to walk in the faith given to them. What was given to them? The message of the gospel, the teachings of the Lord's commandments. That's what Polycarp was just hitting on. Now he hits certain areas of that, of of that teaching, but he just said women are called to walk in the commandments of the Lord, just like men, everybody. Right. Yeah. Um, loving all equality in all chastity. So like with integrity, with holiness, um, sincere, pure in faith. And then training up their children in the knowledge and the fear of God. I mean, that's, that's a basic thing that parents are supposed to do. You have anything on that? Uh, no, I mean, I was just thinking about the importance of our, our role in bringing up our children. I think that, um, you know, that's, that's an important, important thing that we do. Um, it's not all of who we are. And I think that that can be a temptation a lot of times. There's a, a list of other things that we're doing. But um, I think that it is something to remember that basically we're discipling our children all along the way and, you know, doing our best to to model that behavior for them and model what it means to, to love the Lord. Awesome. Uh, then he goes on to widows. And... Um, you know, kind of similar to, again, Paul in First Timothy, who has many things to say to widows, particularly in like chapter five. Uh, he encourages them to trust in the Lord for their security um, and to do things the right way. And there's a lot of temptation for widows then in the early church because there wasn't much security for them. Um, so to try to gain friendships, to try to gain security, to try to um, be able to navigate life there um, in that early church is very difficult. And there's a lot of temptation there. And so 
really uh, Polycarp calls them to to meekness. And um, one of the reasons for that is that they are, Polycarp says, they are the altar of God. When you hear that or when you saw that stuff, um, what what was coming to your mind when you saw that? Um, well, I like it made me think of First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty, where it talks about like honoring God with our body. Like you know, we are a living sacrifice. The, uh, the phrase calling them an altar did kind of seem like it, it was different than calling them the offering, though. Mm. So it made me think more of us being like, yeah, we're the temple of the Lord. So um, that there are expectations of the temple. There are, you know, <laughs> there's there's a lot that goes along with that. Yeah, I love how you went First Corinthians six. Uh, your your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the altar is one of the most important parts of the temple of God. It's one of the most important, uh, cherished, precious parts. Mm -hmm. Widows can often feel forgotten, overlooked, Mm -hmm. not special. And Polycarp is saying, guys, remember who you are. Think about how precious and special you are to God. And then he says, God sees everything, knows everything. Now, if you are listening to that in the church at Philippi, that nothing is hidden from him, reasons nor reflections or any of the secret things of the heart, if you're listening to that in Philippi and you are a married man, are you thinking to yourself, this doesn't apply to me? God sees everything. He sees everything. Right. Yeah. So, like, just because that, that line, the, that sentence is in the section addressed to widows, it 100% applies to everybody. And if you were thinking, if you were there in the room thinking uh, that you're better than a widow or you're more important than a widow or, gosh, those widows are out of control, mm-hmm. uh-oh, you hear that statement, nothing is hidden from God. Right. None of the even uh, secret things of the heart are hidden. Yeah, and that's bringing back a lot of the language of like Psalm 139. You know, God's searching our hearts, knowing he knows our thoughts. And if there's anything, you know, offensive in us, you know, we, we should be asking God to lead us in his ways. Absolutely. So we've come to the last section uh, for this episode. It's chapter five. And um, Polycarp segues uh, with his comment about there's no, um, nothing is hidden from God. He segues to some Galatians chapter six. So uh, Stephanie, would you mind reading uh, chapter five for us, please? Sure. We know that God is not mocked, and therefore we owe it to ourselves to behave in a manner that is worthy of his precepts and his glory. By the same token, our deacons must never be open to any reproach at the bar of his righteousness, remembering that they are ministers of God and not of men. 
There must be no traducing of others, no paltering with the truth, no itching palms. They must be men utterly self-disciplined, humane and hardworking, who pass their lives in the true spirit of the Lord, who came to be a servant of us all. To please him in this present world is to earn the world to come. For we have his promise that he will raise us from the grave, and if we prove ourselves good citizens of his here, we shall reign with him hereafter if we have faith. Our younger men, like the deacons, must be unspotted in all respects, making purity their first care and keeping a strict curb on any tendencies to loose living. In this world, it is It is a good thing to make a clean break with all our carnal desires, because all the lusts of the flesh are up in arms against the Spirit, and because no fornicator, pervert, or sodomite will inherit the kingdom of God, nor anyone of dissolute habits. Our duty, therefore, is to give everything of this kind a very wide berth and be as obedient to our clergy and deacons as we should be to God and Christ. The conduct of our young women equally must show the unblemished purity of their conscience. All right. So first, before um, Polycarp transitions to deacons, he quotes Galatians 6, which is, God is not mocked as a man sows, so shall he reap, basically. So, Again, that's another letter from Paul that Polycarp just quote, quoted. So, very important. Then he gets into deacons. And um, he says first that they're supposed to be servants of God and not of men. Now, this is a really interesting point. Aren't deacons supposed to be servants? Just wait, wait table waiters basically toward people? Polycarp hits this idea that if we're truly going to be servants of people the way God wants, we must be servants of God first. So just something to keep in mind. Um, Then he says three things that Polly, he commands deacons to not be three things that he just commanded uh, wives and widows to not do. Don't be slanderers. Don't be liars and don't be lovers of money. Those are three things that he just called wives and widows to not partake in. Yeah, all of those words are words and expressions I had to look up because I was not familiar with them. But yeah, traducing is speaking badly and paltering is giving misleading info. And then itching palms is like an expression for wanting personal gain or greed. Yeah, yeah. So you can see again, like if if you were sitting in the audience and and you're like, yeah, those those widow, you're you're a guy, mm-hmm. and you're like those widows and those wives, yeah, and they need to stop slandering. And then Polycarp's like, hey, uh, deacons, hey, hey guys, uh, you guys need to stop slandering. You guys need to stop lying. You guys need to not be lovers of money. Like, yeah. again, there is no, there's no partiality here. Just like with Paul in 1 Timothy, the things that the deacons are called to abstain from are the same things that the widows and wives are called to abstain from, young men, young women, that kind of stuff. It it just applies to everybody. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about these deacons, like if they're not 
um, trustworthy or living in accordance with God? Like, who's going to want them coming to help them in times of trouble? Or wouldn't they be the ones who would, like, distribute, like, the to meeting the needs financially or otherwise in the community? Like, they're the ones that would actually be giving benevolence, right? Yeah. So, I mean, who's going to want these people if they're just going to be corrupt and, you know, Know, take advantage of their position. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, he applies that to the Lord, walking according to the truth of the Lord, who was the servant of all. Mm. Now, that's hitting on Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant, right? The greatest of all is the servant of all. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That kind of idea is there in Mark, which is cool. Um, and he says that deacons are supposed to do that. Uh, they're supposed to walk according to the truth of the Lord, the word of the Lord. That's what he told wives to do. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I love your point about, you know, who's going to really trust them if they're not men of integrity. And that can go back to Polycarp's command to arm yourself with integrity, basically with righteousness. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Then he goes to, um, he says some stuff which is really interesting. He says a conditional statement concerning salvation. He says, if we please him in this present world, we shall receive also the future world or the world to come. He will raise us from the dead if we live lives worthy of him. We shall also reign together with him, provided only that we believe. Mm. Was anything coming to uh, your mind with that? Um, yeah, to, you know, it's still not, not us. It's not like you do all of these right things. You do all these great things. You're just living the way that he calls you to live. Um, it's not like if you give away, you know, $500 a month, then you have this. And I think that that's an important distinction in, I don't know, thinking that it's all just works. I mean, it's it's still, it's not our our works. It's our faith that causes us to trust God enough to to live a life that's different. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, What was coming to my mind um, was Matthew 25, the parable uh, of the servants, basically, you know, the owner of the state goes away and and he, it's a parable of the talents, but he entrusts certain uh, amounts of money to various servants based on their ability right? And the first servant comes back and he doubled his five talents to 10. The next one doubled his talents and the last one buried it in the sand. And he says, you know, you wicked, lazy servant. Um, And he, that servant gets cast off right into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But one of the interesting things about that parable is that the final servant says, I knew you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow. Therefore, I hid it in the ground and here's your talent back. Now, the 
the master says, I'm going to judge you according to your own words. So if you thought I was a wicked master, you know, you should have put it away with interest, basically. So this servant had a false view of God and did not try to please him, but lived a life of fear and selfishness not a life of faith. He did not have faith, true faith in the master. Uh, he was leaning on his own understanding in a sense. And um, you see a lot of these, uh, these same characteristics, these same qualities that you find in the parable of the talents here in Polycarp's uh, message. Um, we reaping what we sow, um, truly being a servant of the Lord, not being a lover of, uh, lover of money. And, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's an interesting, be pleasing, living a life to please the Lord, not just to look out for ourselves. Just some things to consider. Um, anything? No. Okay. So, uh, last two sections, he talks about the young men also are to be blameless in all things being pure, uh, abstaining from every kind of evil. Um, these lusts that wage against the, uh, the soul were to abstain from. That's a quote from 1 Peter. And uh, then he quotes 1 Corinthians 6. He says that neither fornicators nor the effeminate nor... Uh, abusers of themselves and mankind. Um, I think that's the, the sodomites or homosexuals uh, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And um, that's cool that he's quoting these passages, um, just reinforcing uh, what Paul taught. Now, it's interesting that he applies this to young men. Why did he not say that to the widows? Why is he coming after the young men so harshly with this? Well, I guess it's the same as you were saying before. It's like this is directed at everybody. Yeah. Those are commands that uh, Paul applied to everybody. Everybody that's a Christian is supposed to abstain from these things. Um, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, that's, that's a command to everything, but he's saying it to the young men, uh, which would definitely get their attention. Just some things to think about. Therefore, Polycarp said, it's needful to abstain from all these things and be subject to the presbyters and deacons as unto God and Christ. Now, again, this is, this is addressed to the young men. Who's supposed to be subject to the presbyters? Everybody, right? But it's just a reminder for these young men in a sense, you know, there, it seems like there is a, uh, there is a quality inside young people to reject authority or to at least push back against authority, rebel yeah. a little bit. Maybe that's all one. of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says, virgins also must walk in a blameless and pure conscience. Now that's probably talking to, uh, young women. Mm -hmm. He's just 
labeling them virgins. So just something to keep in mind. So that's the uh, second part of our episode on Polycarp. Steph, did you have anything you wanted to add in conclusion or any final thoughts? No, I mean, I think it's, I think that like the idea that all of this is for all of us is uh, like an important takeaway. Like we're, we're not, it's, yeah, it's not a different set of rules for different people. Um, you know, there's a, a standard of living that we're called to if we're going to honor God. And, you know, it's all, it's, there's a lot of purity. You know, that's the, the message that keeps coming back is be pure, you know, live a life that pleases God. I'm nowhere near where I want to be But you, you remain so good And you never change You love me still in the perfect way You stay always so Hey